Today's reading is 1 Kings 12, uh, verses 1 through 17, and then 25 through 29. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke that he placed on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the older men who had attended his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? They answered him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he disregarded the advice that the older men gave him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and now attended him. He said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have have said this to me? Lighten the yoke that your father put on us. The young, man who, the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you should say to this people who spoke to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you must lighten it for us. Thus you should say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions." So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had said, Come to me again the third day. The king answered the people harshly. He disregarded the advice that the older men had given him and spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, because it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam son of Nebat. When all Israel saw that the king would not listen to them, the people answered the king, What share do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, O David." So Israel went away to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and resided there. He went out from there and built Penuel. Then Jeroboam said to himself, Now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David. If this people continues to go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, the heart of of this people will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, as I uh, had said earlier this morning, it is good to be back with you all today uh, after being away the last two Sundays to run marathons. Uh, both my legs and, and I think my wife as well are happy for a Sunday off from all that. Uh, but I do have to be honest, I, I observed over the course of this summer and, and fall how Dave showed that the training for and, and marathon running can provide ample sermon material and spiritual imagery. And so I'm, I'm going to take my cues from him. For instance, I can relate to Rehoboam in today's text. Uh, there have been times in the past in my marathon training where I've spurned the wise counsel that tells me, you know, I should be sure to get at least eight hours of rest during intense training or that donuts alone are not adequate fueling for long runs. Um, now, I've never gone full Michael Scott and downed fettuccine Alfredo like two minutes before a race, but there have certainly been times where I've scoured the internet uh, for training advice that confirms how I was already planning to train or, or that approves of my donut fuel. Um, but I digress. Now, today's text uh, from 1 Kings 12 is, how do I put this kindly, uh, not the stuff that dream sermons are preached on. Uh, it, it kind of feels like the kind of text that Le Reverend Lovejoy is always droning on with in The Simpsons. Uh, and in fact, when I saw the text for today, I double-checked the lectionary plan to make sure that I was looking at the right passage. I mean, it's, it's pretty bleak. It's not exactly inspiring. It's also more than a bit obscure when you haven't been walking through the entire story of the Old Testament to know exactly what's going on here. Uh, even poor Amy texted me earlier this week as she was planning for the worship set for today. Apparently, she wasn't any more uh, inspired by this text than I was. So, thanks, narrative lectionary. Um, but given that vote of confidence, let me just give you a little bit of an overview of where we're going to go this morning. Uh, because I do want to walk us through where we are in Scripture's story, give some context to what's happening here, uh, because this is actually a monumental, even tragic moment in Israel's history as a nation. And we'll make some observations from the account itself. Uh, but here's the deal. If you don't know this about me already by now, now you know uh, at the end of the day, we're going to set our focus squarely on Jesus. Now, after all, this story's value lies in the fact that it is part of the greater story of which Jesus is the epicenter, the climax, the thing that matters most and brings it all together. But first things first, what exactly is happening here? I mean, what did we just read? And why should you or I care about some almost unpronounceable kings from several thousand years ago? Uh, let's start with Rehoboam. As the text mentions, he is the son of King Solomon and the grandson of King David, the two most famous kings in Israel's history. So that means that he is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And really, he's coming into power uh, during Israel's glory days. Although in hindsight, we'll quickly realize that this is really the end of those glory days. And while his father Solomon had a promising start to his reign as king, Solomon quickly fell into all of the trappings that absolute power offers to people. He lived an indulgent life. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He was no longer loyal to Yahweh alone, but rather had begun following the gods of his various wives as well. And to make his various initiatives work and to keep his lavish lifestyle afloat, Solomon demanded much from the people of Israel. And God had warned that exactly this kind of thing would happen when Israel first asked for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. There, God had cautioned them 
This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And then there's this list of all the ways that kings will take and take and take from the people for their own benefit. It goes on and on. And finally, God ends the warning by saying this. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And what do we see the people doing in today's text? They are crying out for relief. Because you see, during Solomon's reign, a temple had been constructed for Yahweh in Jerusalem. And it was a true splendor, no doubt. I mean, the likes of which Israel would never see again after being conquered and exiled. But to build this temple, along with various other projects, Solomon imposed a high tax burden on the people and also forced many Israelites into labor for their construction. And the rich and powerful building their empire on the backs of the poor and the powerless is a tale as old as time. But because of Solomon's straying heart, God uses a prophet to deliver some crushing news to him. He's told that his son Rehoboam would only inherit a small portion of the nation of Israel as king, rather than ruling the entire kingdom. And for good measure, the eventual king over the rest of Israel would be none other than Jeroboam uh, from the latter portion of today's text. And here's the thing. Jeroboam didn't have any blood claim to the throne. He didn't come from royal lineage. He was merely a superintendent in Solomon's regime. Although we quickly see he had no trouble embracing the idea of sitting on the throne once he heard about that prophecy. But as soon as this news about Rehoboam and Jeroboam was delivered to Solomon, Jeroboam recognizes that his life is in danger, and so he flees to Egypt for refuge. And so that's the context for our story today. But at the point where we pick things up in 1 Kings chapter 12, Solomon has just died. And so now it's time for the royal succession plan to be enacted. And naturally, Rehoboam still desires to claim the entire kingdom as his own, despite whatever the prophecy may have said. And at the same time, upon Solomon's death, Jeroboam assumes that his life's probably not in danger as much as it was beforehand, so he comes out of hiding. And whether from pure motives or otherwise, Jeroboam and a group of Israelites approach Rehoboam, and they make him an offer. They basically say to him, listen, Rehoboam, life has been a struggle for us under your father. So just lighten our load a little bit, and then we're going to be happy to recognize you as our king and serve you. Not an unreasonable request, right? Uh, but rather than taking immediate action, Rehoboam responds by saying, you know, give me a few minutes, a few days, three days, in fact, to think about it, and then I'll get back to you. And that's really not an unwise move either, to be honest. As his first major decision as king, Rehoboam wants to get this right and set the proper tone for his reign. And then in another wise move, Rehoboam asks for the advice of the older men who had also worked alongside his father Solomon. And in turn, they offer some sage advice. In essence, they say, show the people that you have their best interests in mind, that you are a servant of the people by accommodating their request. Do that, and you're going to have their loyalty forever. But Rehoboam's not really a fan of that advice, and the text doesn't reveal his motive for rejecting their wisdom, but we can quickly guess once we see what he does next. The reading says that Rehoboam disregarded their advice and instead 
consulted with the young men who had grown up with him. Uh, A few things here. Uh, This text could almost give us the impression that Rehoboam was ascending to the throne in his youth since he's seeking the counsel of other young men. Uh, But in fact, Rehoboam's actually 41 years old at this point. He's old enough to know better. And another note, while our translations generally read young men, the Hebrew word's actually more accurately translated as boys. And so the author of the text clearly doesn't think highly of how Rehoboam is going about business. He's spurning the wisdom of the elder for a hot take from the boys. And the boys encourage Rehoboam to double down on Solomon's precedent, adding to the heavy burden already on Israel rather than lightening their load. I think one of the most telling phrases these advisors offer Rehoboam as part of their proposed response to the people uh, is this little gem, maybe one of the highlights of this passage. They say to Rehoboam, say this to the people, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. The meaning of that should be pretty clear, even though we're like 3,000 years removed from the original context. And the Hebrew word here translated as little finger is actually more accurately translated little thing or little one. Use your imagination. Um, But personally, I think it's a little disappointing at times and a shame when our translators tame the more crass passages of Scripture to make them more palatable to us. Um, But all of that to say, apparently boasts about size are nothing new. And then what about the way that Rehoboam spurns wise counsel to merely pursue the course of action or folly that he prefers, the one that makes him look more powerful rather than be perceived as, God forbid, weak? One commentary on this passage notes that the narrator paints Rehoboam as foolish, tactless, crass, recalcitrant, and oppressive. It's a good thing we don't have to deal with leaders like that today. Uh, But needless to say, when Rehoboam delivers his verdict to Israel, it is not well received. Instead, it fulfills God's word that Rehoboam would only be king over one tribe. Because the other tribes respond by saying, in essence, peace out, Rehoboam. We're, We're taking our ball and we're going home. Or in the actual words of the text, back to your tents, Israel. And thus, all Rehoboam is left with as king is the lowly tribe of Judah, Meanwhile, uh, Rehoboam's hubris opens the door wide for Jeroboam to step in into the gap and offer the tribes the kind of king that Rehoboam failed to be. And so Jeroboam does just that. But in the end, he doesn't really fare much better than Rehoboam. Also in line with many of today's leaders and politicians, Jeroboam leveraged religion for personal gain. He possessed his own political aspirations and was willing to leverage liberation language and religious history to further his own position of power. And Jeroboam recognized that with Rehoboam's throne being in Jerusalem, where the temple was, that he needed to provide a separate alternative worship arrangement for his people so that they wouldn't rely on Jerusalem's temple. And really his fear being more that the more people went to Jerusalem, the more likely they may be tempted to change their allegiance. So Jeroboam builds two places of worship, one in Bethel, the other Dan, and places golden calves there telling the people, here are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt, which is a direct echo of Aaron's words to the Israelites in the desert during the Exodus when he fashioned a gold calf for them. 
Uh, it seems like the savviest leaders know how to leverage familiar religious language to string people along. And so, in a completely unsurprising turn of events, if we're to follow the story a few verses further than what we read this morning, we'd find that neither Rehoboam nor Jeroboam had long flourishing reigns as king. Uh, instead, the nation of Israel, the people of God, are now decidedly divided into two separate kingdoms. And as we know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And this will eventually raise a whole host of questions about what it means for Israel to still be God's people. Who are really the faithful Israelites and God's chosen one amidst this split? And how will God bring about his purposes through such a divided people? As I mentioned earlier, this really is the beginning of the end for Israel as a thriving nation. And if today's text seems bleak, it only gets worse moving forward. The kings get worse, and eventually both kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, they both are conquered and exiled, leaving God's people wondering if they'll ever be at home again, much less wondering if God will ever be with them again or work through them again. And while this text does leave us in a, in a rather depress, depressing place, uh, I, I do think it does serve as a cautionary tale about the importance of heeding and seeking wise counsel, of humility or lack thereof, of faithfulness to God alone. But I don't want to spend the remainder of our time focusing on its cautions. Rather, as I said before, I want to spend our remaining time asking how it can point us to Jesus. Because that is Scripture's worth in pointing us to the God revealed most clearly in Christ. And we can study this passage from 1 Kings 12 as interesting history, as an important turning point in the story of God's people, and certainly lessons abound there. But life isn't found there. Life is found in Jesus alone. So let's see how he is revealed even here in 1 Kings 12. And let's start with perhaps the easiest and clearest connection. Like Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Jesus was indeed king of the Jews, descended from the royal line of David. I mean, Jesus' whole life story, really, if we want to look at it this way, is one of his coronation to his throne as king of the universe. Though Jesus' means of achieving that victory come in the most unexpected ways. And perhaps the greatest irony is that while Jesus was, in fact, the only king in Israel's long and sordid history who truly fulfilled their deepest longings for a wise and just servant king. When Jesus actually arrives on the scene, they crucify him, right? They, they kill him because he didn't look like or act like any king they had ever seen or conceived of before, even though almost all of their kings previously had been awful. And I don't think we're much better today either, really. I mean, I'm pretty sure we would still struggle to embrace a leader like Jesus if he were running for office. Uh, one of my favorite movies is The Dark Knight, because Batman. And uh, if you didn't know this already as well, I am Batman. You can ask my kids about that sometime. But in The Dark Knight, at the end of the movie, Commissioner Gordon ends it by saying that Batman is the hero Gotham deserves but not the one it needs right now. The hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. And flipping that phrase, I, I would say that Jesus is not the king we deserve. 
given the mess we've made of everything, he's far better than what we deserve, but he is the one our world desperately needs right now. Remember, the, the older men who advised Rehoboam counseled him to be a servant of the people, advice that he flatly refused. Yet that way of leading is exactly what Jesus embraced. In words that should be familiar to anyone who's preparing for their life group here at Res this coming week, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus was precisely the opposite kind of king of what God warned Israel about in 1 Samuel 8. Jesus didn't leverage others for his own gain. Rather, he emptied himself of everything for our benefit, for our gain. And not only does Jesus provide a strong contrast to Rehoboam in his desire to be a servant of the people, he also leans into a completely different source of wisdom than Rehoboam. Whereas Rehoboam rejects the wisdom of the older men to see what the boys had to say, Jesus recognized that even the best-intentioned wisdom of the wisest men could prove to be folly and instead sought wisdom through regular communion with his heavenly Father in prayer. And I know that it seems like cliche Christianese to highlight the importance of prayer, but that is the place we must start. That's not to say we shouldn't seek the wise counsel of others. In fact, I'm a firm believer that God often speaks to us through others, but our default should always be to turn to God for wisdom first through prayer rather than as a last resort. And we see that pattern modeled in Jesus' life time and time and time again. And yet, Jesus is not only a king in stark contrast to Rehoboam, uh, Jeroboam provides equal opposition to the kind of king we see in Jesus. After all, what do we see in Jeroboam? As we mentioned earlier, he leveraged religion for his own gain, building new places of worship to keep his hold on the people. Jesus, however, never leveraged religion for his own benefit. In fact, religion was often the thing that was leveraged by others against Jesus. Many of the Pharisees seemed to leverage religion to increase their own prestige. Sadly, again, something that is all too familiar in our era of megachurch and celebrity pastors. The religious leaders also used religion to condemn and diminish Jesus' authority. But again, we never see Jesus do this. And not only did Jesus not use religion as a power play, like Jeroboam did when he built new places of worship to reinforce his hold on Israel, Jesus went in the opposite direction entirely and actually rendered the temple obsolete, tearing into the curtain that separated the people from God, giving all people direct access to God through his indwelling spirit made possible by his work on the cross. And yet maybe most directly connected to our text today and most important for our purposes today, Jesus didn't merely rip into the curtain keeping us from God. He also tore down all of the walls of division between us as human beings, dismantling everything that separates us from one another, all of the hostilities that create an us versus them. Rehoboam and Jeroboam's actions divided the kingdom. They split God's people, creating hostility and fostering division that was perpetuated for centuries. But Jesus, 
came to wipe away all that might divide us. He came to bring healing. In Paul's breathtaking reflection from Ephesians chapter 2, we're reminded that Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Later on in that same chapter, Paul continues here in the message translation writing, instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, God created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of hostility. Friends, our text from 1 Kings 12 reminds us of the constant refrain of division and wall building in our world. But it's merely one of many such examples throughout human history up until our present day of the myriad ways we divide as people, the ways our leaders mislead, the ways the powerful leverage everything they can for their own gain, the ways we completely miss the point and desire the wrong things. We know the story of 1 Kings 12, not just because John read it a few moments ago, but because its story is so familiar in our world today. But it doesn't have to be the story that we embrace. In fact, our unique identity as citizens of God's kingdom means we get to experience a foretaste of Jesus' ultimate future for us here and now. We are a people for whom all hostilities have been rendered impotent, where divisions must cease, where peace and love and mercy are our weapons and our aim. And not only do we get to experience that foretaste of God's future here and now, but in this unique global community that we call the church, including this local church community that we call Resurrection, we are called and invited to embody that foretaste, that unity for the rest of the world to see and experience for itself here and now. That is good news. We are called to be good news. As we close again in words familiar to those who are in life groups here at Res, Paul urges us as the church in Philippians 2 to see the vital importance of our unity because it's the logical outworking of Jesus' reconciling work on the cross. Paul writes, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. These are all expressions of unity. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Because again, we serve a king who unites by becoming a servant. And so yes, let us learn from the folly of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, let us name abuse of power when we see it in our midst today. Let us lament the ways we see division perpetuated all around us, both in our culture and more importantly within the church. But friends, let us never forget that we serve a different king. Or perhaps more accurately and far more beautifully, a different king serves us. And this king rules and serves with love sacrificial love. He offers peace. 
He cultivates a truer, deeper unity. And unlike Rehoboam, who completely disregarded the pleas of a weary people and instead increased their burden, Jesus' invitation to one and all is this. Come to me, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please pray with me.